Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me into your home this week. Let's have a Q&A show. I wanted to first, since I uh, have not done this in a little while, I wanted to actually uh, put in a plug for my Patreon uh, account, for my Patreon campaign or uh, for basically support for this channel through Patreon. It is, um, since I haven't explained this or broken this down in a little while, I'd like to just quickly explain what that is so people who are not familiar can uh, know what this is about. It's a way of supporting the channel by um, basically contributing a dollar or five dollars or however much you want uh, every month to my cause, to my channel. There are different ways that Patreon um, can, you know, can. there are different systems that exist on that platform, like some people do it by piece of content that they upload, like songwriters or something, because they're not uploading every week, uh, like I am, where I literally am uploading content every single day of the week. So I don't charge that way. <laughs> Instead, what I do is I have a monthly thing where you can just kind of contribute a flat amount every month, or you can do a yearly uh, amount, and then at that, that gets broken down by month, but that is uh, a one and done for an entire year of of membership on my Patreon page. And um, I don't have tons of perks or individual things on my Patreon account. I've, I've done stuff. I've done, you know, monthly Q&As for my Patreon supporters and stuff in the past, but it wasn't really, it didn't really seem like that was something that they wanted from me. Uh, there were not a lot of feedback or a lot of people like, you know, doing that. They just wanted to support my channel and I'm completely okay with that. Uh, so I don't have, I'm not heavy on the perk side of things, but if you're a Patreon supporter, then of course you're. When you send me questions, I I put them at the top of the queue. I have a separate section for my patron questions, and I try to get to those every single week as much as I can. And um, of course, you know you can always privately message me through Patreon, and uh, we and I have you know conversations and chats with people that way also. And I obviously because people are supporting me through that will tend to bump up the importance of those communications. So. Uh, anyway, that is Patreon, and it is a way to support this channel. Another way of doing this is to, um, of course, you can always send love or support through PayPal. Uh, I have links to uh, my PayPal account and to Patreon in the description section to this video and every video I have ever posted. So um, you can always look in the description section of my videos and find those links. All right, so I just wanted to put that there. And I also wanted to say there was no podcast this week. I did not do a Sensibly Speaking podcast. Um, just had a little bout of the ups and downs and uh, wasn't quite feeling it. Tried to tried to try to sit and do something, but it really wasn't working out. And I just didn't feel right about it and didn't feel like it was uh, something that I uh, that was working. And so I didn't want to do that to you guys <laughs> just for the sake of putting something out there. So, um, so it didn't quite work out this week, but we did do a, uh, critical conversation show on Friday and, uh, Mel, well, I was joined by Mel and we had a, a nice discussion about free speech and, um, and related issues. So I hope you guys will check that out. And also I do have one other favor to ask you, uh, as a channel subscriber or watcher, if if you are somebody who has been watching my channel and, and enjoying my work, 
um, I would ask that you please share my channel with somebody, anybody, and just somebody you think would enjoy it, would like it, would, would think that the content I'm providing is useful, educational, entertaining. If you, if you feel that's the case, uh, please share my channel with somebody and encourage them to sign up. I have, uh, or subscribe really, is that there is no sign up that goes on here. But um, I want to grow my channel and it is continuing to grow. It's not like my channel is is tanking or going down in any way. It, it just keeps kind of going. And I think we're coming up around uh, 38,000 subscribers or something now at this point. But, um, but I want to get more viewership. I want to get more engagement. I want to get more community going on here on my channel. And the best way I know how to do that is actually just word of mouth through the people who are actually the most uh, avid fans or critics, as I call you, my critics out there. Um, that's who I want to spread the message out there. Okay. So anyway, like I said, if you could do that for me, that'd be awesome. And of course, I'm always down for any feedback, suggestions, uh, criticisms, anything you have for me in terms of how I might do better on my channel, do better with my content, do more with my content. You guys have given me tons and tons of awesome suggestions, and some of them I've taken and some of them I haven't. So don't feel bad if I don't. I'm, I'm always just looking for ideas and uh, ways to continue to uh, grow and uh, ways to educate. So anyway, there you go. There's my little rambling uh, intro for this week. Let's get on with your questions now. Steve Wood, you described a film Hubbard made showing a young boy traveling to a different planet, bringing Scientology to a new civilization there, and it got me thinking. I'm interested to know if Hubbard laid out a game plan for exactly how Scientology was to be delivered in the event of a nuclear holocaust, for example. As I'm sure you agree, it's hard not to write this without a big smile on my face, as I know it sounds completely crazy, but I'm interested to know if he broached this very important topic. After all, if the amount of detail he spent in explaining how to clean a window, one would think the details involved in how to restart Scientology after a nuclear holocaust should be very detailed, should they not? Hey, thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are very detailed instructions somewhere. But we don't have them. I, you know, they're not public issue. They were never issued in any non-confidential form that I was aware of. And in fact, in looking into uh, how this, what you know, this this business of how Scientology has archived and stored and kept all of Hubbard's works on uh, media that will survive a nuclear holocaust. I'm talking about steel plates and gold-plated, uh, you know, CDs and and records and. Um, uh, archival, you know, NASA level technology being used to store this stuff in, in airtight uh, titanium boxes. I mean, these guys really went all out. And we've talked about this in detail on my channel with a podcast that I've done in the past with a guy named Dylan Gill, who used to work at the Church of Spiritual Technology and, and detailed what goes on there. So this archive thing is real, and it's very, very serious uh, effort on the part of Scientology. And there are numerous locations where they have these archived places, Twin Peaks, California. There's actually a Wikipedia page about this. You can, you can look up on Wikipedia, the Church of Spiritual Technology, and you can find that they have numerous bases throughout the Western United States, Twin Peaks, California, Creston, California, Triple J Ranch in California, 
uh, Petrolia, California, and Tulum, California, the Lady Washington Mine, and finally Trementina, New Mexico, which is referred to as the San Miguel Ranch. So those are the locations we know of. There might be others. I know, for example, they had tried to set up a location in Wyoming, but that didn't. I don't know that that really flew. I don't think they could get the property or something was wrong with that. Anyway, they have these sites, and these things are way out in the middle of kind of nowhere. The Twin Peaks uh, place, for example, is up in the mountains of um, Big Bear, California, uh, up, in the, up in the mountains up there. So it's a little hard to get to. It's a little hard to find. They don't make them easy or accessible. And they also have all these locations fully confidential in the world of Scientology. You know, nobody in Scientology knows anything about this stuff, except what David Miscavige told them in, a, in the year 2000. He did a briefing. I think it was the first real open public briefing about these locations, and he didn't even specify the locations. He just showed pictures from them and talked about the archival project and what they were doing with it. And so all of this is about keeping Scientology around in the case of a nuclear war or some other similar Holocaust or, you know, a pandemic or whatever, some, you know, viral thing. It, there's many, many ways that we could end up all killing ourselves and destroying the, you know, the human race or most of the human race. And so if that were to occur, Hubbard wanted life on this planet, whether it's humans or, you know, what otherwise, to... Um, to have Scientology, the idea that Scientology is the single most important thing in the universe is a very real and serious belief in Scientology. They, they take this really seriously. So, um, so Hubbard's words, Hubbard's lectures, Hubbard's technology is, as far as Scientologists are concerned, there isn't anything more important than preserving that so that future generations can take advantage of the knowledge and achieve the spiritual freedom and immortality that Hubbard promises and thereby save civilization and, and make the quality of life for everybody, you know, that much better and, and uh, that much more true and real and all of that, according to the Scientology worldview. Um, okay, so they have this very, very serious goal to do this, but it's the best kept secret in Scientology because hardly any Scientologists even know that this is a thing. And if they do, they really don't know much in terms of the details. They only know that this, that this stuff is stored in the briefings that have been given, which I saw. They talked about not only having L. Ron Hubbard's works preserved, but also taking all the dictionaries that Hubbard recommended. And there is a list of specific dictionaries from specific publishers that L. Ron Hubbard recommends as the dictionaries to have. For example, the um, Webster's Third New, uh, Third New World Edition uh, for Young Readers, Webster's Dictionary for Young Readers, uh, Third Edition, I think, is one of the key ones. That's one of the most popular dictionaries in Scientology, all the way up to the Oxford English Dictionary, the, the big you know, 10 or 12 volume uh, compendium put out by the Oxford University press that is the final source for, you know, the definitive source for the English language. And everything and they have various dictionaries in between. They have those stored there too, as well as grammar books, um, English books, you know, things that would teach somebody how to how to read what English is. I mean, there apparently there's some kind of symbolic 
documentation or instructions that were left in these in these um, vaults that like you know you, you wouldn't do all this work spend millions literally millions of dollars uh, investing in the research and the development of archiving this stuff so that it will seriously last for thousands of years and then not leave any instructions on what it's all about. So there are apparently illustrated or symbolic instructions that anybody could look at and understand how to open up these containers, how to open up this material, what it is, what it's for, how to utilize it. For example, they have these um, nickel-plated records and gold-plated CDs. Um, I think the records are, are what's most important because they're literally just turntable records, except they're nickel-plated and they have record players designed uh, and in, this, in these vaults that are solar-powered or hand-cranked. And you can put your you know, nickel-plated L. Ron Hubbard lecture on the record, you know, put the little needle on and crank it or get solar power and listen to there's L. Ron Hubbard talking about, you know, this, that, and the other thing uh, a thousand years from now, <laughs> right? So there were some people in a cave listening to L. Ron Hubbard telling them about engrams. I mean, that's the idea. That is the idea is that people will be able to learn English. Uh, there will be, you know, apparently kids, English books, Dick and Jane books, something like that. And um, and a whole series of educational materials, encyclopedias, reference books, every single book that L. Ron Hubbard ever mentioned in his lectures or writings, I believe. They also have copies of those up there. So, um, you know, Golden Bow, uh, maybe, you know, Freud, some of work from Freud or Young that Hubbard mentioned. I mean, Hubbard's mentioned a lot of authors in a lot of different places. So anyway, all of that stuff would, should be there or could be there. Um, so as you can see, you know, some thought was put into it. But after, you know, the, the thing I want to highlight about this and the, and the thing that's a little silly about all of this is that each of these vault locations has a symbol of two interlocking circles with, with a pair of diamonds inside each circle, or a, a diamond inside each circle. So there's two, two diamonds inside two overlapping circles. Um, that symbol is etched or, or, or you know, somehow put into the ground so that you can see it from up high, kind of like the Nazca lines down in down in, in uh, Mexico or South America uh, you have these lines drawn you know that look like um, they look like uh, airstrips or something right well here you have this this great big uh, symbol carved into the into the landscape around each of these vaults visible from the air you, you look at it on the ground you can't really make out what it is but up in up you, know, you get 500 feet up you can what's that about? Well, apparently this symbol is supposed to be uh, there as a calling card for, oh, this is an important location that, you know, spiritually you should be connected with or that somehow is a beacon for, you know, Thetans who will uh, glom onto these locations or find them through this symbol. 
Uh, and yet this symbol is completely unknown in Scientology. Nobody talks about this symbol. Nobody knows anything about the Church of Spiritual Technology or its logos and and its mission. I mean, there's very little about this other than this briefing from Miscavige in 2000. This doesn't really get talked about a whole lot unless they're doing fundraising around it. They have uh, fundraised for this uh, archive project, millions and millions of dollars from Scientologists. So they've briefed some Scientologists in some detail about this to get money from them. But otherwise, your run-of-the-mill daily Sea Org member, staff member, Scientologist, they're not thinking about, knowing anything about, or briefed in on what this whole archive thing is really all about or what that symbol means or any of this. And you'd think... If you were trying to get all the Scientologists on board with, with this preservation of the tech thing, and, they, and you really needed all of them to have it kind of, you know, branded into the side of their head that this symbol is important and that they need to rally to it in the case of some kind of disastrous circumstances, you know, literally epically uh, awful genocidal sort of things— then you'd want to have that symbol very prominent in people's minds in the world of Scientology so that they would know, oh, these locations are very, very important and I need to remember them even into my next life. No such activity occurs in Scientology that I'm aware of. And I was in Scientology for decades. So, you know, I learned way, way more about this entire subject, this entire project, and everything I'm telling you about it after I got out of the Sea Org because it was the best-kept secret when I was in. So, you know, so the master plan to save all this stuff and, and ensure the future of Scientology seems to have a little bit of a fatal flaw in its execution and this actually is yet another reason why I believe that David Miscavige is completely, totally, and 1,000% couldn't give a shit about the future of Scientology or what L. Ron Hubbard actually intended for Scientologists. He doesn't care. Because if he did, you'd think that this project, which they are investing millions in and which they are legally obligated to, by the way— because they told the IRS all about this when they got their tax exemption. And the Church of Spiritual Technology is one of the three key organizations that, that is what the, that, that, that forms the very foundation of what the Church of Scientology is. Because preserving the tech and preserving L. Ron Hubbard's words and, and lectures and all that, that's how Hubbard achieves immortality. And that was Hubbard's only real goal with Scientology was, I want to be immortal and if my words and my intentions continue to be executed into the future, then I have achieved a, a kind of immortality because I will never be forgotten. I believe that's how L. Ron Hubbard was sort of approaching that topic. And, um, you know, just based on what I've seen and read. So, so this is what ensures Hubbard's legacy. And to that degree, Hubbard or Miscavige is sort of obligated to keep this thing going but in a practical sense, in a real-world sense, in a, oh, my God, what if there was a Holocaust tomorrow kind of sense, th this whole project is just a big joke. It's just a big money hole. You just sink money into it. And, you know, a, a very small number of Scientologists are working actively on this project. And, by the way, 
this is the thing that Shelly is working on. If she's working on anything that we can that we know about, it's this. It's it's working at the Twin Peaks uh, facility of the Church of Spiritual Technology. So, um, so this is what we believe she and and a handful of other you know very very hardcore dedicated Sea Org members. This is their life's work, but like again, best kept secret. Right. So uh, not really, you know, it's kind of one of those great, big, huge contradictions where you go, well, in order for us to continue to ensure this, this, this continues, everybody would have to know about it. You would want everybody to know about this stuff. But instead, this is one of the most confidential things in the world of Scientology. So there you go. And uh, thanks for asking. Brentwood 84. I was curious when someone said they were a past life Sea Org member, if there is any vetting done. Or like you said, they just see this person as an easy target for recruitment and just let the person say whatever they want. Once a Scientologist dies, what happens to all their auditing paperwork? Is it kept forever or tossed in the circular file? Seems like if they keep those kind of records, it would be easy to check up on someone's past life story. All right. Thank you for this question. And actually, a couple of questions here. And um, yes, there is vetting that is done, um, but it's not a he, you know, a, a sort of. It's not done in a in a way that they're going to tell the person. Okay. Well, we've determined because we can't find your past folders or any paperwork from the past life that you had, because we can't find any of that, we're going to call you know bullshit on your claim. They don't do that. What they do is they say, okay, here's a guy who um, say is saying he was a past life clear or a past life OT or past life Sea Org member. Now, clear and OT, much, much, much more important than if a person is saying they're a past life Sea Org member. Generally, nobody's going to go check up on or try to find your past folders or do any any serious vetting of that. They might do a cursory vetting of it. But if you're saying that you're a past life clear or a past life OT, they're gonna, they're, there's a process. There's actually written instructions from Hubbard that you are to get the person to tell what his name or what her name was from the past life. And then you go do a world, you know, an international search for those folders. You try to find from the person, okay, and where were you, right? Ah, I was in England. Ah, I was in Copenhagen. Ah, I was in Australia. Okay, good. Try to narrow the target down a little bit. But folders move around all the time. They get shipped all over the place. People move around all over the place in non-obvious ways. People have gone from America to go get auditing in South Africa, for example. And when you do that, your folders get shipped down to South Africa. So all your folders could be down there, even though you live in the States, right? I mean, weird things like that can happen. So it can be that, you know, there is no master international database, at least there wasn't when I was in, of all the PC folders on the planet. There were databases, computerized databases being put together of the PC folders, so they might have such a thing now. But at the time that I was in, they didn't, and they were still compiling and putting all that stuff together and sort of digitizing it all. PC folders are always kept. They are never, ever, 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 ever thrown away. Um, there have been fires. There have been problems. Uh, there have been, you know, um, you know, ways that floods. There are ways that that hard copy paper, cardboard PC files have been destroyed. 
but they are not ever purposefully destroyed. They are kept, and uh, a great deal of money and time is spent organizing and, and, and storing these things. There are warehouses in Los Angeles and in Clearwater uh, where they just have you know stacks and stacks and stacks of these things. And like I said, they have them all uh, barcoded now and scanned into a computer system. Um, so, okay, so here you are, you're Joe Blow, and you're like, okay, yeah, I think I was in the Sea Org before. Okay, cool. Well, let's get you signed up now, and let's get you back, and they'll recruit you really hard to get you back in the Sea Org if you're qualified this lifetime for it. Um, and if you are, you know, are the kind of person who is into telling recruiters things like that, then you kind of deserve what you get because... <laughs> Everybody knows in Scientology, you do not talk to recruiters. They are the most annoying people in Scientology. Everybody hates the recruiters. But um, but recruitment is something that has to happen, and people do get recruited all the time. And, and it's a big, you know, kind of bludgeoning process of beating people down until they finally cave in and, and agree to do it. Uh, I, I, you know, I did a lot of recruitment, and that's kind of how it goes. Um, so uh, anyway, as far as, you know, looking back up and vetting the person, it's, you know, when you're recruiting somebody for staff or for the Sea Org, very little vetting is done. There is a list of qualifications that are, that, that are checked. Uh, with the Sea Org specifically, the, the biggest vetting is no LSD or or any derivatives of LSD, angel dust, and any hallucinogenics or serious, you know, psych psychotropics are going to be looked into very carefully because Hubbard was was crystal clear about that. No one can join the Sea Org who has ever taken LSD, so they're really really stringent about that. You know, finding your past life folders, if you claim to be a past life Sea Org member, it isn't huge on anybody's radar. Because it, it, it's not crucial to your future as a Sea Org member. It, it, your case level doesn't matter. Your past life status as a Sea Org member doesn't really matter. What you're doing in the here and now is what they care about. If you're a past life clear or a past life OT... Well, this means you're jumping the line and you're you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm already there. And so they're going to want to check that out because that's the case where they're going to lose money, right? Because you're going to not have to get the auditing to get to clear or get that auditing to get to OT. And that's what they're going to want to check into. Because remember, at the bottom at the bottom of this whole thing and at the end of the day, it's all about the Benjamins. It's all about getting that money, separating you from your money. So, um, so that's why there's a lot more vetting when it comes to past life clear and OT. Uh, okay, so um, that's those are the answers to your question, Brentwood eighty four, and I hope that was uh, useful to you, Jeremy White. I was wondering if it would be possible for someone to infiltrate Scientology, work their way up the ranks, and expose or bring down those within, up to or including DM. I'm thinking of undercover detectives, spies, or even actors who can truly convince people that they are legitimate. Thoughts? All right, Jeremy, thank you for this. I have addressed this in the past as well because this comes up from time to time. And my answer has always been pretty consistent on this, which is it is a fool's errand to do that. Um, in order to infiltrate Scientology and get to the level of David Miscavige and get evidence on David Miscavige specifically and personally, it would require a minimum investment of two to three years of somebody's life because you're not going to get to David Miscavige's inner circle right away. Nobody does. 
It takes, there's a lot of loyalty hoops and tests you have to jump through. There are a lot of, um, and this is all involving the use of the e-meter and um, Scientology knowledge and production. You have to be a very, very productive Sea Org member and really basically be somebody who kicks ass and takes names in order to even be considered to get bumped up to international management or the international level because that's how there's a whole vetting process there's a whole qualifications process you have to go through and this also involves at least a year if not two a very serious production right they don't just let anybody up to the international base or those, those levels um you have to be trusted especially now i mean because they've They've pulled in their flippers. They've circled the wagons. They are an extremely paranoid group. Scientology has been infiltrated. There have been people from media, people who have been looky-loos, who have gone into Scientology and tried to come out, you know, and and done journal articles, um, YouTube videos. I mean, there's, the, you know, the, the, there are infamous people uh, on this. And... They routinely, you'll notice if you if you look into this or, or research this at all, since I've gotten out of Scientology, there have been no less than three very prominent examples of people infiltrating Scientology and then reporting on it. And um, they got caught every single time by Scientology and kicked out by Scientology. Um, it, to varying degrees of seriousness. And uh, the Office of Special Affairs gets involved, and then they start you know, stalking, and they, they hire private investigators, and there's all kinds of trouble that comes from trying to fool or pull one over on Scientology. And because they're so paranoid, and they are constantly checking people and constantly looking, especially for new people coming in, they're, they're going to catch you. Is basically what I'm trying to say, right? Unless you are mentally, psychologically prepared for and have prepared a backstory with documentation, witnesses. I mean, you have to have a, a, a real setup. You have to you have to look at this as infiltrating the mob. What would it take to be an undercover agent infiltrating the highest levels of the mob? How long does that take? What do you have to do in order to make that happen? What sort of criminal activities do you have to engage in? What sort of moral compromises do you have to engage in? What sort of things do you have to agree to? What kind of relationships do you have to engage in? How many people do you have to fool? Right? How many friendships do you have to make that are not really friendships? A lot. The answer to these questions are a lot. <laughs> and and this would be a long-term effort. And in terms of uh, collecting evidence, reporting back to outside people, the higher up you go in Scientology, the harder this becomes. I kept a cell phone on me when I was routing out of, of the Sea Org because I was in touch with my you know, my significant person that, that ended up dumping me. Um, but I was in touch with her for months with a secret cell phone that I had. It was really, really hard on a contained Sea Org base, a little enclosed world that it is. It was really hard to keep that secret for months. 
um, you know, checking in, talking every now and again, that kind of thing as I was leaving Scientology. So I was keeping her in the loop on what was happening and we were staying in touch. That was hard, right? I can't imagine the amount of pressure somebody would be under if they were to get into David Miscavige's inner circle and were trying to collect evidence and report on this guy. So basically, bottom line is I don't recommend or condone or endorse or suggest or anything like that that people try to uh, infiltrate Scientology or get some, you know, schemey idea that they're going to go in there and and collect some evidence and walk out and bust David Miscavige. It would take professionals at a really professional level to do that kind of work. And, um, and, and the proof of that is the fact that, you know, many people have tried and failed um, the, to get and, and by failed, I mean they failed to get the real goods. I mean the stuff, the, the, the deep stuff, the things that would, that would come out that we don't already know. You know, the, the things about Scientology at the, at the entry level and at the mid-levels, we know everything about that already. There's nothing unknown there. It's abusive, it's nefarious, it's awful, and we know all about it. The things at the highest levels that we don't know all about would... Are, are, are very hidden for a reason, <laughs> and they're very well hidden, and um, and it would take a professional effort to get those, and I know how to do it. I know what it would look like to do it, and I would be more than happy to advise FBI agents or, you know, uh, police law enforcement officials on how to do it, because I know exactly how to do it, but, um, but I haven't seen anybody come even remotely close to doing the things that would be necessary in order to make that happen. So, and, and I don't see that any of that law enforcement's ever going to get interested enough and put enough of a budget together to do that. I, I wish they would. I, it would be awesome and amazing. Um, but I just don't see the, I don't see anybody motivated enough to, to carry that out. So there you go. Stefan Tweet. Does joining and belonging to destructive cults possibly provide the member with a form of self-medication, which eventually becomes unhealthy? Does it possibly cause the member to, quote, numb out, inner pain and strife, not unlike an alcoholic drinking a beer, a gambling addict placing a bet on a baseball game, or a relationship slash love addict jumping from partner to partner? Stefan, thank you very much for this question. Basically comparing addiction modes or models to a cult model. And there are very, very definitely similarities there. Um, and, and brain chemistry especially. We're talking here about dopamine and other neurochemicals, um, neurotransmitters that get activated uh, during times of pleasure or intense euphoria, you know, causing these kind of like, ah, you know, getting high, these kind of experiences. These are the most powerful um, sort of sensory experiences that we have as human beings. And when we get these neurotransmitters, um, you know, these chemicals in the brain firing off in particular ways, we experience amazing uh, you know, we have these events of, of, um, of what we think are amazing perception and ability, as well as just staving off, you know, if not that, at least staving off the difficulties and traumas and stresses of the day-to-day -day of our lives, right? We all want to get away from the 
psychological torments of our job or our family life or, uh, you know, our Aunt Jemima giving us a hard time or, or whatever. You know, we want to we wanna get away from that, escape from that, and we want to feel better. And those chemicals are what make us feel better, and they make us feel significantly better. And so it, once we do something, anything, that creates that hit, we want it again and again and again. And this is exactly what happens in Scientology with the auditing. That's where it's most prominent. There are similar uh, moments of euphoria, similar dopamine hits during um, training, during classwork. That can happen from time to time too. But the most powerful Scientology experiences, the, the thing that it has to offer the most, is in the auditing. And this is why I say auditing is not doing what you think it's doing. It, you know, Scientologists are told that auditing is erasing past trauma. It's not doing any such thing. What it's doing is it's giving you a dopamine hit in the here and now in regards to your past. And so you feel this sense of euphoria or settlement or responsibility or, or closure or whatever with these incidents in the past. But the theory on which Scientology is built is wrong. It's false theory. It's pseudoscience. So the trauma that you experienced in the past and the way you're dealing with it now by taking euphoria hits may or may not relieve that past trauma. For some people, it will. It'll be no good. They're not going to think about it anymore. But more often than not, that trauma didn't go anywhere. And you certainly didn't erase anything out of your brain. So it's a, it's a, it's a false sense of dealing with that trauma. You haven't really dealt with it. Unless through the process of the auditing, you came to also sort out the causative elements of that trauma, work out your own responsibilities, other people's responsibilities, work out the associations and the identifications and the, the um, attachments that were involved in that. I mean, there's all these psychological principles that you can bring into this that are what you're really trying to do when you're sorting out PTSD or complex PTSD or trauma is you're trying to do quite a few different things. You're trying to do a lot more than just feel good about it. And what Scientology offers you is kind of a, you know, oh, you have this past trauma? Well, here, you know, snort this line of cocaine and you're going to feel way better about that and everything else. So in that sense... It's very similar to an addiction model. And, um, and I'm not an addiction expert, so I only have had a passing experience with this in my classwork. And so I'm not going to go into deep, deep detail about this or make further uh, analogies about it because I don't want to overstep. But I can say this much with certainty, and I hope that, um, you know, that what I've, I've put here helps clarify why auditing and why Scientology can become so important to people is it's not just the community and it's not just the, you know, goal of personal spiritual freedom. It's also there is an addiction factor here as well with the auditing. And I said, like I said, I've touched on that a little bit in the past here and there, but um, but I think that that's actually kind of important to the, the, the general picture of what's going on with Scientology. 
Dolly Jean. I have a friend who's an avid Scientologist and who recently went clear. It got me thinking about how people really feel or expect they should feel after going clear. Does their relationship with others change much or do they feel they should be able to quote unquote read others' tone levels, have the ability to fix flawed relationships, or that life in general is completely different from the moment they attest? It's hard for me to believe that the euphoria they feel initially really lasts. And if that's the case, do they feel a sense of letdown or do they just ignore it and shrug it off, explaining it away to something else? Also, somewhere in my delving into Scientology a few years back, I remember reading in one of LRH's books about it being ideal that both parents are clear before having children because of it setting them up in the right environment from the moment they are born. And I wondered if you'd heard anything about this or if it is a thing that Scientologist couples think about and take seriously enough that they hold off having kids until they are both clear. Hey, Dolly, thank you for these questions. Um, okay, so as I was mentioning in my last answer, uh, there is definitely an addiction factor or an addictive euphoric hit kind of factor to auditing. And that very much applies to hitting the state of clear because that is a major milestone in one's progress up the bridge to OT in Scientology. So clear's a big deal. It has been since uh, Hubbard started talking about it back in 1950 long time ago. So um, so clear is this big, big goal and people really, really go for it. And when they get there, they feel how they're supposed to feel. Oh my God, this is amazing. This is wonderful. This is great. When I went clear, I was out of my head. I couldn't believe it. I felt wonderful. I was really on top of the world for a while, <laughs> right? It's not permanent at all. And uh, I've seen auditing results, you know, fade away within an hour. I've seen people who go clear or some, of, you know, do some of the OT levels who are on a high for months. You know, they're just nothing's touching them for for weeks or months. They're just like ah, uh, but eventually they all come back down. And how this gets explained, of course, is that you until you get all the way up to OT eight. You got a case, you got this stuff you got to deal with from your past. You have all this trauma, uh, engrams, locks, secondaries. That's what they call it in Scientology. I keep calling it trauma. They don't do that in Scientology, by the way. I just keep using these words because they're more English understandable terms. In Scientology, they don't talk about trauma. They talk about engrams and locks and secondaries and charge and case. They talk about your case. Your case is the sum total of all your bullshit, all the crap you've been carrying around with you that's not you or some part of you or the upsets you've had, the disagreements you've had, the, the, the fights and the, you know, trauma, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, so they believe that they're going back in their auditing and they're erasing their past trauma, that it's going away. Well, they're addressing a lot of trauma, quote unquote, that never existed, stuff in past lives, crap like that. So it's really an, F, an, an exercise in, well, as John Atak calls it with hypnotism, guided imagination. It's really, Scientologists are really sitting around for the most part, imagining things that have happened to them and then erasing those imaginations, you know, those, that imaginative, uh, those imaginative events. So how much... 
you know, how, how, how much is that supposed to really do for you? In terms of lasting psychological gain, not a lot. It'd be like sitting around, in, you know, if you, in your living room imagining stories, which can be fun, but to imagine that you're going to relieve stress with that or you're going to actually deal with relationship issues, personal issues, depression, anxiety by sitting around imagining stories. I mean, that just doesn't, it, it, these two things don't really connect very well. And that's really, at the end of the day, what you're really doing with auditing is you're just sitting around imagining stuff for the most part. Unless you're dealing with this lifetime stuff, and, and in that case, you're talking about it, but you're not really addressing you know, identity issues or relationship issues or emotional issues. You're doing everything through this lens that Hubbard offers, and, and that's not much of a lens at all. Anyway, so... Um, so as far as the euphoria and the letdown and all of that, Scientologists basically explain that by saying, well, I've got more case and it's keen in now. That's a term they use. It's keen and it's coming in on me and it's affecting me and I'm feeling bad because of it. And, um, and I need more auditing, right? And then when you get to OT8, when you're supposedly done with all of the negative case gain and you've gotten rid of all of your case, that's the point when the euphoria shouldn't really stop. But of course it does, because it's all just a fantasy. So anyway, that's, I don't know, that's what I can say about that. As far as the clear thing, I know I never heard of or saw anybody in Scientology holding off on having kids because they weren't clear yet. I never heard that. I, it might well be that somebody took that advice to heart uh, or some couple did and didn't have kids so they were both clear, but I never met them. All right, let's do some flash answers. Logamug, what was your most effective way of getting people to flunk TR0 bull baiting sessions? There were a couple things I could do that were sure fire flunks if I was bull baiting somebody. And remember, bull baiting is where you sit across from somebody and you try to push their buttons and get them to react. It's a communications drill, it's, a, it's an exercise that's done as part of the communication training in Scientology. So if I'm sitting across from you and I'm trying to get you to crack up or laugh or, or otherwise react, um, I can take my fingers and shove them at your eyes. I don't touch you. I almost touch you, right? I get right up on you. Boink, 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 right? Zing, zing. Do some Three Stooges action or something like that on you. Make it like I'm going to get really close to you, right? I can get almost anybody to react doing that, even if it's just a little bit of blinking. Blunk, you blinked, you know, just clap in somebody's face, like right up on them, right? Clap really hard, really loud. They'll blink. <laughs> yes, they will. Um, also telling dirty jokes um, or insulting the person directly about their sexuality, about their uh, appearance. Um, you know, really basically be, being willing to cross lines of, of social norms or etiquette, you know, is basically how you do it and you get people riled up um, and, and, and any kind of little rile up, any kind of reaction at all. Flunk, you know, you blinked, flunk, you laughed, flunk, you this, flunk, you that until you get the person not reacting. You keep doing it. You keep clapping in their face. You know, making like you're going to take their eyes out, telling dirty jokes, saying nasty things about them, uh, insulting them, and you keep doing it. 
You keep saying the same things over and over again until they're not reacting anymore. And then you move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And as a supervisor, I checked out tons and tons of people over the years on bull bait. I had to be the one to give them a final pass on it. So I was, I was kind of tough. Um, but I also knew that I had to draw a line somewhere because I could make somebody sit there and react forever. You know, there's always things you can do to push people's buttons, but you do want to get them through the drill too. So I wouldn't push too hard on some of those things sometimes because I wanted to give the person a win too. Anyway, that's, uh, that's some experience with that. Dylan Chatterton. I recently came across a product called CalMag that is for plant health. I've also seen some supplements called CalMag that support bone health. I couldn't help but wonder, what do ex-Scientologists think of the CalMag drink that is so popular when one is in Scientology, such as doing the Purif? When you were in, did you drink it regularly, despite the horrid taste, and believe that it was super important for your health? Do you or any ex-Scientologist still take CalMag supplements or drink it? Just curious. Hey, Dylan, you're talking about CalGag. And no, I don't drink it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um... Uh, not because, uh, I mean, just because I, I don't drink it. I Not because uh, cal, calcium or magnesium are inherently bad for you. If you need that supplement for your bone health or something, fine, go ahead and take it. But that Scientology crap is, oh, it is horrid tasting. I mean, it's really bad. Um, and if you mix it wrong with too much vinegar, uh, you get apple cider vinegar in, in with the mix. Oh, man. Ugh, really unpalatable stuff. So uh, I was never a really big fan of CalMag uh, in or out of Scientology. And I don't know too many people who, I, I think I've seen one or two references over the years to people drinking it or having something, uh, going and getting some CalMag for something. Alex C. Regarding the Pacific Area Command Base, it's a pretty big place. My curiosity centers around the main big blue building, which I believe is about eight stories tall, not counting the basement. It's a big building. What's actually taking up all that space? Are there abandoned rooms or is the whole thing being used? Finally, are the birthing spaces up to the same standards as the public facing spaces? Thanks for this question, Alex. Uh, very quickly, it is a birthing building almost uh, exclusively. Uh, I believe all the rooms are used or almost all of them. There are storage spaces throughout the building. There are um, also uh, furniture storage spaces. You know, there's rooms that just have broken down beds and, and dressers and stuff like that in them. Um, you also have some office spaces in that building on the lower floors, the basement level, first floor. That's where the galley is, uh, where they prep all the food. The main mess is on the first floor of that building. Uh, so we all went there to eat every single day. Uh, INCOM, the International Network of Computer Organized Management, the computer guys, the high-level computer guys in Scientology, have an office space in the in the basement of that building. Security is in the basement of that building. Uh, the, the security control center is there. Uh, the uniform supply area, there have, there's a, the uniform exchange is also in the basement. Uh, there's engineering spaces. In the lower levels, um, you actually have direct access to a bunch of pipes and engineering spaces and stuff there, too. But most of the space, easily 90% of that building, is birthing. It's just uh, beds and rooms that people are sleeping in, either uh, couples' rooms. When you get married, you get your own room. 
or dorms uh, where they have, you know, beds stacked up two, three, four high. And the spaces are absolutely not anywhere near the level of the public-facing spaces. The renovations and work that's done on the birthing spaces is perfunctory, if done at all. Uh, sea Org members live very slovenly, uh, very low quality lives uh, in those um, birthing spaces. They're they're really bad. So yeah, that's what I can say about that. All right, guys, thank you very much for coming around and watching the show this week. I enjoyed answering your questions and I enjoy looking forward to answering more. So send them to me. Uh, ask Chris Shelton at gmail.com is the email address and uh, keep them coming. I really want all of you guys to um, have the answers you want. So uh, keep sending me the questions that you want answered. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.